Welcome to the Psychosphere. I'm David Sutcliffe, and my guest today is my good friend Bruce Sanguin. Bruce is a former minister in the United Church of Canada, now a psychotherapist living in Denman Island, or on Denman Island, I guess, British Columbia. He is the author of seven books, including his latest, Dismantled, How Love and Psychedelics Broke a Clergyman Apart and Put Them Back Together, which I just finished and is excellent. Please enjoy my conversation with Bruce Sanguin. How you doing? How, how I mean, this is crazy. It is a bit crazy, isn't it? Yeah. How, how are, what's your assessment of the situation with the coronavirus? Well, it's interesting that, I mean, yeah, uh, all kinds of sociological analysis possible. It's interesting that in China, they're taking down all the Corona's hospitals because they don't have enough cases. Yeah. Like the curve is somehow flattened there. Yeah. Which is hopeful. Yes. That's how I feel. But it could be crazy in the U.S. where the Trumpster maybe <laughs> has, has blown his next term. Like, you know, I don't he's, know. He's got a different style of uh, approaching these things. Um, but I'm, I mean, I'm reading a lot of conflicting reports online. There's definitely some people that I know and trust smart people that are really sounding the alarm. They are saying that the worst is yet to come. This is bad. Um, and we're, we're in trouble and, uh, they're not telling us the whole truth. And so I don't, I don't know what to believe really. Um, I'm trying not to be too pessimistic about it. I, I, I feel excited somehow. I feel like somehow it's breaking down something. It's going to force us to confront things. It's, it's going to expose the weakness in some of our systems and that this systemic change that uh, we all knew needed to happen is this is going to force, force our hand. And it's, obviously there's going to be a, uh, a breakdown and some economic pain, it sounds like. Yeah, it's I, happening. Have a, I have a feeling in the long run, it's, it's, it's just necessary. Yeah, like it's gonna, it's gonna be good. It's gonna open something up. So, I, I don't know. It's interesting. I'm feeling very excited, optimistic. I feel all of this creative energy. I want to create things, do things, contribute things. Well, yeah. those who are on the astrological end of things saying it's the birth of a new humanity, sort of humanity 2.0, it's sort of aligning with that kind of, uh, <clears throat> with what you're, with what you speak of, that we got to change. And, you know, I, one of the most interesting pieces I read was that like all these viruses that are fucking threatening human species are related to habitat removal. Um, and it makes so much sense in terms of humans thinking that they can just, you know, uh, bulldoze another city into existence or take on the Amazon forest. Yeah. But they give the example of, of the clearing of, uh, this native habitat. And so that owls and birds of prey and natural hat couldn't take care of the sort of the white toed mice. Uh-huh. And the white-toed mice aren't good at cleaning themselves. And so they're now realizing 
um, in the absence of uh, the habitat for its predators, uh, it proliferated and along with it, the Lyme's disease that they think it was the major carrier. But they go, you know, and this one was, you know, like grounded in like, but, but it's related to, uh, I didn't even know that, right? I didn't know AIDS was related, but you know, we got it from chimpanzees. And, mm -hmm. you know, so. so I think yeah. on all levels, including ecological, it might sort of wake us up. I think so. I, I was listening to Jordan Hall. Do you know this guy, Jordan Hall? He's a, he was a tech guy, started a bunch of companies, made a lot of money, retired, and now he just writes articles and is a general interesting thinker. Um, his, uh, the phrase that he's coined is sense-making. He's a very, very smart person, but uh, he thinks where we're at is we're at an evolutionary point. Like the, the, the change is a thousand years, 10,000 years, even more than that. We could be at a point of the whole humanity could be evolving. The species could be evolving. He, he relates it to when we went from Homo erectus to Homo sapien, that at this point in time, we could be evolving to a new species, which I've been saying, it's like the way we're integrating with technology. I mean, we're already basically part cyborg. I mean, we're so connected to our phones. They've become an extension of our brain. It's only a matter of time before that's fully integrated in us organically, biologically. We're, we're you know, we're different species, really. We're something new. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's the whole conversation around transhumanism. Right. I don't particularly like the notion of like this techno homo sort of, but you know, maybe it is inevitable. You know, all my previous books were all about humanity 2.0, right? Like all my, when I was writing from a Christian perspective, uh -huh. uh, you know, it was, it was totally evolutionary spirituality and was all like, you know, like we need to be that aspect of the evolutionary process, which has gained the capacity for conscious evolution. And so, Whereas for 14 billion years, we've been on the victim end of the evolutionary process. Now we're being called to be managers of that evolutionary process. Uh, the process itself having awakened to itself and asking itself, okay, what kind of future do we want to create? So interesting. That was totally what like seven books, uh, but I did it from a Judeo Christian perspective. So it, you know, it was, I was big in that like shrinking realm, uh -huh. but, you know, basically ignored by everyone else. But that was my whole gig, you know? So it's interesting. And I kind of let go of the evolutionary paradigm a bit because of its implications of higher and lower and later forms are more uh, evolved than earlier forms. And I just, I just didn't want to deal with, you know, the neo-Nazi right notion that you know we're we're the evolved uh iteration of human species or of, of the universe even so i kind of dropped it but that's who i was well maybe that's a good segue do you want to talk a little bit about your your former life you know we haven't really spent a lot of time i met you post your former life and certainly know a little bit about it and i'm been reading your latest book so there's uh, sprinkles of information in there but maybe you could just 
talk a little bit about what you used to do, what that was like, how you got into it. I mean, we'll just riff on that for a bit. You were Especially a reverend. The, reverend. The reverend. People, people called you reverend. They did. How is that to be called reverend? It didn't mean much to me, really. It never meant much to me. I, like, I, you know, I was, a, yeah, it didn't mean much to me. But there's a real role you were playing. Oh, totally. And a lot of transference and a, a lot that you have to hold inside yourself. Like, I, like I'm, as I was reading about it, you know, you talked about it a little bit in your book. I was just thinking about how you, there's a lot of power that's involved. There's a lot of bullshit you got to deal with and how you hold all that for your congregation, but also inside yourself and also how lonely it must be. It is lonely, but it's, uh, it's tricky because you're surrounded by humans and right. everyone wants a piece of you. So you feel like you have, you know, community, but then you leave and you realize <clears throat> they forgot about me in about three weeks. <laughs> after 17 years i was like okay who's next is that true that's actually true except for i kept relationships with two couples but do you think that over the how long did you do this 28 years 28 years and over all that time and all the interactions and all the sermons you must have impacted people along the way and maybe they didn't come and say something or that you know they didn't stay in touch but i'm sure you had a tremendous impact on a lot of people well like at, in the last 17 years of my ministry uh-huh. uh, <laughs> languages, uh you know i had more people the people at the theological college was wondering what the fuck was happening at my congregation canadian memorial because like a dozen people were called into ministry. Like they were in, they, they went, they made it their life and it was unheard of. It's like, what the hell is going on at this church? That... So yeah, I impacted people's lives. Inspired them. I inspired That's amazing. Them. And what, yeah. what, what pulled you in that direction? Why, why did you get into it? Well, I was a jock basically for, mm -hmm. and you know, I lived for various sports and I was at the University of Winnipeg getting an undergraduate degree, but really I was there because we had the best volleyball team in Canada. And so I played volleyball there for four years, except for one year where I quit because I didn't like the coach. And then I played basketball for the team. And, uh, but in the last year, like I started for some reason, the question of what that, what's the meaning of life came to me, like in a hit hard, it was weird. It's like none of my friends were asking what's the meaning of life. And I took a course in transcendental meditation and started meditating like big time. Like I went deep and all of a sudden I went from being an average student to taking courses like in transcendental psychology and like becoming an A student. And so finally that, like my soul got lit up in the fourth year and uh and it was after that i got invited to this evangelical rally and i heard a preacher saying that jesus is the way the truth the life and nobody comes to the father but through him and i bit hard as young people are wont to do and like i was looking for meaning and he seemed like meaning embodied so 
I, I sat down with my minister at the time and he said, well, it seems to me you got three choices. You could be a lawyer, a doctor, or a minister. What's it going to be? And I had never had this conversation in my life with anybody, including my parents, right? So I said, okay, well, Jesus is the tree, way, the truth, the life, uh, ministry. And so he took down an application form from a files, and I filled them out. And next thing I know, I was on a plane to Toronto to go into seminary with my newly born daughter and my then wife. How old were you? I was <clears throat> 25. Wow. Yeah. And so I spent the next four years doing in seminary. Yeah. Getting ready. And it took me about three years to deprogram from the evangelical fundamentalist Christian thing. And for a while, there wasn't a progressive option. And so I was kind of, I was a little bit psychotic. I was like, like, because I had based my life on this and I didn't know what was going on. So that's when, actually, that's when I did my training in psychotherapy and got accredited and did all that at the same time that I was waiting to be ordained and thought I would go into practice. But then I got placed in my first congregation and it went okay. And then the second congregation gave me a call and said, Hey, you want to come here? And I said, okay. And then by that time I was off, off and running, you know, not without hitches. I went through like, I, I actually the, you know, the, so this is my 10th year of ministry. I was like in the wilderness. I was like the, the arid progressive Christian version of church was like, uh, like being in a desert, being in a wilderness, you know, it's like, it was so rational. Uh, there was no mystery. There was no mysticism. It was just like dry logic. And it was like, uh, the agenda was social justice, which is fine. But, you know, you replace the soul and the spirit of a religion with uh, social justice, and you become like the socialist party at prayer. You know, it's, it's you know, it, it, and so this is when, actually, I, uh, I went on a, I was burned out, like, I was burned out. And uh, I decided to go on a silent retreat to Narragansett, Rhode Island. And there I read a little book by um, Brian Swim, who's a physicist. And it's, it was called The Universe is a Green Dragon. And I, I, I put the book down at the end of it and everything had changed. It's like I had my most profound mystical experience where I realized that I was the universe in human form after 14 billion years consciously experiencing the evolution of the cosmos. So I was that. And so my small separate identity and ego of Bruce Sanguin, who was over here. And if I wanted to see the universe, I'd have to look through a telescope, you know, to see mm -hmm. it up there. It's like that just fucking dissolved. And I was like, I was like, shit, I am the universe looking at the universe. I'm the eyes of the universe right now. I'm the hands, the, the like, I'm, I'm the universe doing the universe through Bruce Sanguin. And so is everybody else. But we bought into this narrative of separation you know, Rene Descartes and that whole split between yeah. power and spirit and the scientific revolution and that. And what got lost in that is that there actually is no separation 
anywhere. There, all there is is there, if we feel alienation and disconnection, it's because of something else. But the ontological truth of the matter is that we are that thing, whatever that is, that evolutionary mm -hmm. process, having a human experience. And uh, so then when I got that, I was like, Jesus, like everything's got to change. And so I saw it in a flash that how we did liturgy, how we prayed, how we did community together, what was the purpose of uh -huh. a church all changed. And the purpose became for me, the embrace of conscious evolution. And how did that take in the congregation? Well, I left that congregation and I went to the next one because it was too much. It was like, well, who are you, Bruce? And what the hell, where did you go? We're like, what did you do with Bruce? Um, mm -hmm. So then I went to Vancouver and I was interviewed because we interview in United Church. You compete for your jobs. And <clears throat> I told them what I wanted to do at the interview. I said, if you hire me, this is what I'm going to do. Like, and don't be fooled. If you bring me on board, I'm going to do this. <clears throat> And so I laid out what I wanted to do very clearly. And they said, yes. Wow. So then began a process of organizing a, uh, a community life through a Judeo-Christian lens uh, uh, in this evolutionary paradigm. So I wrote a book of prayers. I wrote a book about ecology. I wrote a book, you know, from, from this evolutionary perspective within the Christian paradigm. Um, and, 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 and the life and the dynamics of how we did life together was all based in this, you know, we are the presence of the universe after 14 billion years with the capacity for conscious evolution. And we're doing it through this particular paradigm of Christ consciousness, but that's what he was doing too. He, he was a foretaste of humanity 2.0. And it was, wasn't like he did it for us. He said, this is what's possible. This is the new human. Like, so if you want to quote unquote, follow me, you become this. This is like, this is not a gig that somebody does in your behalf. This is like, you awaken and get this and let's, let's get on with it. So you become little Christ in a sense. Right. And so you, you have to then take, you're not throwing the Bible out, obviously. That's that's the main doctrine. You've got to. I reinterpreted it. Well, exactly. You re, you reinterpret it, and you got to look at the stories of Jesus through this lens of non-duality and see his teachings. Totally. That's and that was my gig. Like, and I started speaking all over the world about this and re and bringing this mindset to scripture and opening it up actually and just. It, it's still very interesting what happens when you do that. Like, it's like, okay, like if this evolutionary thing is, is accurate, then it's got to have impact on all the lineages of the world, not just mm -hmm. Christian, but it's, it's got to at least have something to say about that. And you would think that if it's accurate, then you start interpreting it through that, then it's going to open up new stuff. And it did. And how did that, take in that congregation were people open to it did they like it yeah i mean some people um you know some people struggled with it but basically we organized they went for it we organized our mission vision and values around this evolutionary paradigm and that's what we were all doing together 
And so church looked different. Our community life looked different. And we buck the trend of all Protestant denominations in North America, which is this decline into oblivion, which is still underway. And we were, right. actually, we were actually growing. And as I was saying in the beginning, all these people got excited and they wanted to give their lives to, you know, uh, being ministers. So, you know, it, it went well. It was like, a, it was a thing. Do you feel proud of that? time because I, I notice as you tell this story it feels like a time in your life that maybe you have some stuff with I learned a hell of a lot about myself I mean I was like during that time I was really lit up and I was passionate and gave me a reason to be there right. and I was doing my thing and making my <laughs> contribution I felt like I was right within it and um, yeah I, I don't regret it for a moment and I you know some of those books that I read are still being like selling all of like, I wrote a book of prayers from an evolutionary perspective, from a cosmological perspective, and it's still selling, you know, so people are still using it. So yeah, I'm proud. Um, I will say this, uh, that one of the things unconsciously that I was continually doing was trying to get the church on board around looking at shadow because I knew that this was the missing piece was evolutionary spirituality. Everyone was up, was into ascent, into transcendence, into like, every, like, yeah. and at the time I was just like this, uh, we need to like, we're not dealing with shadow folks. And if there was any inertia, it was caused by, by hurt people, hurting people in the congregation and having to organize around those people because we were Christian. Yeah. yeah. Even the whole Christian thing was a privileging of the good over the true. Right. And I can, I was saying, well, let's get true here. What the hell, what's actually going on here? Like I was, I was advocate, but I couldn't get at it. Like no one was up for it. Like that was the thing I could, I could do anything else. Right. But the shadow, uh, uh, that's not what we're doing here. We're nice middle-class white right. suburban people. You're having your fun thinking these big thoughts. That's fine. Just don't fucking disrupt us with this shadow nonsense. And I knew it was the missing piece. And I went around the world, you know, in my talks saying, like, we got to do shadow stuff, folks. But I didn't, I, you know, I, I think because I really hadn't got deep into my own, uh -huh. I, couldn't take, I couldn't take it any deeper. <clears throat> and that's still the missing piece. It's like, and now, you know, it, Today, I think there would be more awareness around sort of trauma awareness and there'd be more openness to this, but, you know, whether or not, I, I think, I think the church itself is doomed to extinction. Really? It's, it's a matter. Yeah. I think it's a matter of, you know, Canada is 20 years behind Europe. Europe, it's almost over. They have state run churches where the state pays the minister's salary. Otherwise they couldn't function. Canada is 20 years behind that. Uh, all Protestant denominations, including evangelicals, are declining. Catholics are doing a little better because of immigration from mm -hmm. Central American companies, uh, countries. But and the U the U.S. is still, you know, really a Christian culture. But you know, in my opinion, it's not far behind. You don't think there's a potential for it to reinvent itself, almost the way that you you did with your congregation? I don't think so because there's not enough uh, mystic awareness. <clears throat> mm. 
among the leadership, there's two things. One is the direct experience and the direct knowing of that which is called God, Spirit, the great mystery. And the second is there's not enough shadow work. There's no, and there's not a lot of appetite. I don't see an appetite for that anywhere. So in the absence of those two things, it's just there will be a continuing inevitable decline. Do you think the religious impulse is uh, innate in human beings? That, that So in other words, a new religion will emerge, some new yeah. thing yeah. that people bring people together in a spiritual way. They'll pray and worship and try to find meaning. For sure. Yeah, I do think it's innate. You know, we've been doing it since Homo sapiens, you know, stood up and started, you know, leading Africa. It's, it's just, uh, or even before, you know, the Neanderthals, there's evidence now that, you know, they buried their, their dead with, with um, you know, with symbols of nature, fertility mm -hmm. symbols. You know, so, so I do think it's innate that this incarnational dynamic is uh, in large part uh, has to contend with a memory of non-separation. And so there's something in it that just, just, you know, if we stop for a long, we go, oh, there's something wrong with this. Like, like I feel alone and I feel separate. And, but there's some part of us that still remembers a time of non-separation <clears throat> and, and another, another domain that is connected to, but other than this one and questions of what is my life for what am I doing here? I, I think those are innate and invariably there'll be new expressions of it. Like, yeah. What will, do you have a sense of what those new expressions might be? I mean, one of the things I think about is religion for a long time was a way of understanding the world. And once we discovered psychotherapy, which is very recently in the idea of the unconscious, that became a new way of understanding ourselves and the world. And so maybe in some way, you know, psychotherapy has replaced religion. That's, yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I think that was Carl Jung's discovery. I mean, first Freud's, you know, he's, it, you know, it's not that the ancient indigenous people didn't know about the unconscious. They called it, they just took it seriously. They, they thought that these imaginal realms are actual, like, we can spend time in the lower, the middle, the upper realms. And it, it's, it's not just a, per, you know, it's not just a personal unconscious. And so Jung came along and said, yeah, that shit's real. But um, it's, it, you know, so he's developed this idea of the collective unconscious, that we have a relationship with all these interior invisible archetypes. But my reading of Jung says that he didn't really take that, um, um, he confused that archetypal realm with uh, with the the whole, and so he didn't like he he was like um, on the edge when it came to spirit or great mystery. But for him, like you're saying, the collective unconscious replaced religion. Right. But I think he I think he got stuck in a way because he didn't realize that these archetypes that are part of our unconscious and we need to be in relationship with yes including the shadow aren't the whole story there's there's a whole nother realm or other realms that indigenous people remembered um, that we can have access to 
Um, but he was dealing with scientific credibility at the time. Like Jung, he had to be taken seriously. And so he, 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 he put boundaries around what he was prepared to seriously consider. But, but I think, you know, yeah, psychotherapy, new age spirituality, and I think more recently the, the renaissance of the psychedelic space and indigenous ceremony in and through psychedelic space with, for example, ayahuasca and mushrooms uh, is an expression of what you're talking about. Yeah, and we should definitely get into that because that's a big part of your book. I mean, that's essentially what your book is about, um, your experiences with ayahuasca and your awakening there. That was my experience when I first started going to ayahuasca ceremonies. Um, it felt like church to me in some way. Mm -hmm. um, it was community. There was singing. <laughs> exactly. It was in the end. It it was deeply uplifting, and you were communicating with spirit, with God, however you want to frame it. But the something greater than yourself that felt absolutely undeniable. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's that's how I experienced it. This is this is a new type of religion that's emer emerging, or at least a a uh, a place where people can go to have this this need met, this need for spiritual community. Yeah, absolutely. Like I had the same experience. Like after you know thirty years of church, I went to an ayahuasca ceremony and said, "Oh, this is church." Yeah. Right. It was. What drew you to what drew you to ayahuasca? <clears throat> I had fallen in love with my soulmate, and I was pretty much fucking it up. Mm. And then I heard, you know, that this stuff was amazing. Like you said, there's a direct knowing or a noetic quality to this. And so, a friend of mine said that he'd been, and would I like to go? And so that's what got me there. Is like it, essentially, I was motivated by making myself more fit for relationship uh-huh and then as a, as a bonus you know there's this transcendent possibility of of this non-dual experience and i had had it in that silent retreat at, at the level of cosmos yep but i wanted it now at the level of spirit so yeah i mean i came out of my first one and just went geez man this is like this is it this is like church. How did you make sense of it, your first ayahuasca experience, or or maybe your first couple, as as you learned to learn to navigate the space and understand the medicine? What what? How did you make sense of it? Because people make sense of it in a lot of different ways. Well, I, I you know it was simply an experience. Like I wasn't trying to make sense of it through a Judeo Christian lens anymore. Like mm -hmm. I, it, was, it was unnecessary, and so. I made sense of it just like, you know, the portal opened and I was now in this thing that I'd given my life to. Like, like that's the sense that I made of it. And, and it was also, as you know, it wasn't like, you know, all rainbows and happiness. No. Like, it was an ordeal. And then there was something about the ordeal and sharing the ordeal with a room full of people, all of whom were suffering that was theirs to suffer and you know that was deeply satisfying as part of the of a you know in a sense a religious a true religion mm -hmm. 
It's like we've forgotten the element of ordeal. So you were getting, I was getting ordeal. I was with a community who was doing redemptive work, puking, you know, like suffering. I was like connected to this non-dual realm. I mean, it was like, Jesus, why aren't, uh, why exactly are we not doing this as a society? Like, what? What? I think, how, how, how come nobody I, ever told me about that? I think it's, you just said it, the purging and the suffering. Yeah. A lot of people are not down with that. I have this feeling that those of us who do this work, you know, you, you do it for yourself, obviously, but you do it for humanity. You, you, you can't have everybody doing this, you know, just like you can't have everybody being a politician, being a lawyer. It's like, it takes a certain fortitude and a certain dedication. And if you really want to go all the way into it, it's going to unravel your life. Yeah. I mean, there's just no, there's no way around it. I mean, everything that you thought you knew, all the, your, your identity immediately gets challenged and it, it really is like taking the red pill and it's very hard to go backward. Yeah. And, and this is why those, you know, again, the Judeo-Christian notions of, of election, you know, of a, of a remnant of people doing this redemptive work on behalf uh -huh. of humanity is grounded, I think, in some reality. It's been, it's been sort of confused with elitism, right. right? That we are the superior people and, you know, God's called us for privilege, but then you realize, well, who said? I mean, maybe God's called us into service to redeem on behalf of humanity. So... A lot of those metaphors around election and the call can be redeemed with this experience precisely in the way that you just brilliantly pointed out. It's like, it's, it's not for everyone. And you do have a sense that you're doing healing, redemptive work. And it's not about your individual ego, surely. Uh, you know that. And, and I think there's, there's also an aspect of I felt recruited. And, and so that can be confused in the Christian thing of, of like... <clears throat> you know, proselytization, that Jesus is proselytizing for a new religion. Well, he never did, actually. He didn't want to start a new religion. But, he, but we are, like I had the palpable sense that I was being recruited for love. And it's like, mm. I, I was faced with an existential crisis. I was like, <clears throat> are you in, dude? Like, are you going to go all the way with this? Or are you just going to dabble your toe in the water? I, I was confronted by that. And then you know, I thought about the Gospels where Jesus, like, meets these guys and goes, like, are you in? And they're fucked. They're, they're, they either walk away from what's true, this recruitment for love, and know that they missed their opportunity and go back to their old life, but always haunted by, ah, I was given this chance. Or they dive in and lose everything. <laughs> <laughs> lose everything. Yeah, it's not, it's, you know, I think about it all the time. You know, I should have just stayed a simple, stupid, unaware actor making TV money and live in a big house in the hills and have a pretty wife and get on with it. You know, there's that moment where it's like, why, why did I go down that path? But, but there's, it, it, it you know, and, and people will say to me, oh, you, you made this big change in your life. And it's really courageous and it's brave, good for you. But it, it, it doesn't, it didn't feel like a choice. Right. It's like, this is just what's happening. I have no, I, I don't have a choice. I have, I have to walk down this path and face 
what I have to face. And that once you start walking, there's no going back. You have to walk through. You have to go all the way. And you know that. Yeah. And along the way, there's all kinds of suffering and doubt and pain and despair and hopelessness as you come face to face with, you know, all of your illusions about yourself and the world. Yeah. And you know that the only thing you can do is just to keep going and to trust that there's something beautiful waiting for you on the other side, which is how I get through these difficult ceremonies. When you are in the pit of hell in an ayahuasca ceremony, which I've been many times, having no idea how I'm going to get out of it, feeling that time doesn't exist, feeling that I'm stuck here for eternity. You know, it's like you just try to summon that part of your brain that says this is going to end. And when you come out of it, you're going to feel <laughs> great and there's going to be an enlightenment. Just trust and surrender. Yeah. Not that that necessarily alleviates uh, much of the suffering. It just gives you a little thread to hold on to while you're in the pit of hell. Yeah. Just yeah, for anyone yeah, out there yeah. who's thinking He's about thinking doing about ayahuasca. It. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> you got to try it. <laughs> yeah. Well, what I found with ayahuasca is like the first four or five were blissful. Uh-huh. And then I got, then literally the next, I don't know, four dozen have been really hard. Like it was then it was a stripping away. Then it was a loss of, of everything I thought it was, right? Then that's what's. That's just painful. So my, you know, like your life gets stripped down if, you know, you, you commit, but it's yeah. like, you know, it's like Jesus used this analogy. He said, you know, um, it's easier for a rich man uh, or for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle than it is to realize the kingdom of God. It's actually you get to the point where it feels like uh, th this is too much. You know, there's this story in, in Genesis after the, the story of the creation of the world where the, the gates to paradise are uh, guarded by, by cherubim with flaming swords. Like, so once you've been kicked out east of Eden, there, you know, there is no going back. Like, can you, can you go back to that blissful state of ignorance i i don't know i mean in the matrix i guess you can take a pill or whatever it is and and then you forget everything but no there's got to be some part of you that 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 knows that's how i feel um and you see it in people i i you know i've encountered people who are really baked in the lie of their life and the lie of their belief systems and they're miserable and stress comes and you see them crack and you see something open up and you see the pain come through and there's truth that emerges and can they hold on to that can they move forward in that it's tough because a lot of times it involves as it did in your case you got to leave everything behind including your community including your friends because a lot of times you're in collusion in those lies with a lot of people, potentially your partner. Mm -hmm. And so to give up that is give it, you're giving up your tribe and it's a terrifying 
thing. And that's, that's what I see out there a lot. It's like people know the truth, but to give it up, they're just not willing to give up what they have. And, and I have a lot of compassion for that. Yeah, I hear that. Because I also, I know how hard it is. I, I mean, I'm up here in Idlewild alone in transition, having, you know, retired from acting, trying to build a new life. And I'm up here confronting myself. And there's a lot of great days. I go for walks, there's hikes, it's a beautiful small town. But there's other days I just come face to face with my despair. Mm-hmm. It sucks. Yeah, there's no and distractions. Like there's nothing. And I and I that's why I came up here to confront myself. And I knew to get where it is that I wanted to go. That's what I was gonna have to do. But you don't you don't, you know never know exactly what it's going to be. You can't if if they told you what the pain actually was, you'd you'd never go. <laughs> you know, you'd Yeah, it's you, true. But that's what you do. You put yourself in that situation and you deal with it. This is, you know, it's like the vision quest. It's like four days, four nights on the hill, no food or water. It's like, okay, that sounds difficult, but you don't actually know how difficult it's going to be until you're there. And my strategy is just to not think about it. Like people are like, you thinking about the vision quest upcoming? I'm like, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I will think about it when I'm there. If I start thinking about it, I will never go. Mm. So how was that for you? Because so you were you were a minister of a church. You left the church. You started a psychotherapy practice. And now you you went deep into the world of ayahuasca, psychedelics. And now you have a... Uh, a psychotherapeutic practice that involves the use of psychedelics. I mean, it's on the outside looking in, it's a fascinating story. Yeah. It's one of those things where like, you know, you, you can't plan for these things. Like you, you can't engineer these things into existence. So it's, it, it feels unlikely by the, by the time I left the church, uh, you know, I, th- I think I was really awakening to the limitations of it. And frankly, I left under strained conditions where I had found my beloved. I was in a marriage. Uh, I wasn't with my beloved, who is currently my wife, but I knew I was done with my marriage. And some people in the church didn't like it. And uh, it pushed their buttons. And, and I didn't want to stick around to deal with that. I just knew it was over, you know. And so... So the transition was a <clears throat> was was kind of abrupt and painful, but you know necessary, I think. And um, but it's it's interesting. Like I, I don't know, I'm a Gemini, so it's like once I once I went down this path, like you said, there 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 was literally no looking back. I got I never. Sometimes I'll have a dream about being in the church and being a minister, but it's never about the church. It's usually about my mother, mother church, right? That's usually what it is. But other than that, you know, I, I've, I've never been back to a church service in seven years. I've, except sometimes they invite me to speak and I do that. But it was like, okay, uh, what's next? And let's do this thing. And I've always had that intensity where if I'm into something, I am into it full bore. Uh, so, um, 
it seems in a way, I think it seems more radical to others who look at my life from the outside and go, right. Hey, it's like that. It's like, how does that happen? It's like, I, I, then it is to me. So I, I was really ready to let go of, go of all that, all the Christian framing and, uh, all that work of reinterpreting the tradition. And it, it was, that was, um, arduous. And then once this, once the medicine started opening up, like what the deeper stuff inside of me, it was like, there was no question for me. It was like, okay, this is my path. So um, it's not that it's not, it hasn't been difficult, you know, like you, I, you know, I had to recreate my life and, and open a practice and figure out what that was going to look like. And, you know, but uh, strangely, it just feels like it, it feels like it was kind of a natural progression from church into psychedelics. It makes sense to me, but I can imagine to a lot of people on the outside, it's, it's a, it's a strange, it's a strange transition. It's an, but it is, it really is an interesting one. Hold on here. You're a Gemini. When is your birthday? June 20th. Okay. okay. Right June the 8th. Yeah. Yeah. Did I know that? I, I, so we're both Geminis, and in your book, I knew you grew up in Winnipeg. I didn't know you were born in a small town in Saskatchewan. Yeah, yeah, Kindersley. Saskatchewan, yeah. my father worked in an oil rig. He was like, like the definition of redneck was that, you know, you get a redneck, a red yeah. hand here from standing over. So he's a, he was yeah. a rednecker, and we lived for first five years with like four children under the age of six uh, in a silver liner trailer. Uh, taking in diesel fumes and who the hell knows what else. Uh, and until my mother had enough and then she moved to Winnipeg and then I grew up in Winnipeg. You know, yeah. Cause my family's from Saskatchewan. I guess, I guess maybe we talked about this. I, I, for some reason I'd forgotten maybe. We were yeah, both, I, both I, born I, in Saskatchewan. I think I remember that both born in Saskatchewan. Yeah. 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 I'd forgotten that. Just, just another layer of the synchronicity that uh, has existed between you and I. And we really met, right? At an ayahuasca ceremony. We met at an ayahuasca ceremony. I knew. I mean, in, Mex I had, in Mexico, right? In Mexico. Yeah. Maybe we should tell this story because it's an interesting story. And I had dated your daughter back in, I don't know when, 15, 12 years ago. And uh, at the time, she, she was, you guys were going at it. There was stuff going on. She was trying to reconcile, and and I was on your side. <laughs> I was on Dad's side, you know. Um, so I, it was, it, and I was trying to help her, and she she wanted to be helped. She she wanted to figure it out. Like there was a real good intention there, and and you know it was. Uh, so it was an interesting time to be around. So I heard a lot about you, and your name was came up, and. And, you know, I was like, it's fascinating. Oh, he's a minister of a church. He's written all these books. And, and then years later, I encounter you in Mexico at a series of ayahuasca ceremonies. It was such a, it was such a bizarre moment to see you there. I'd seen your picture. I knew what you looked like. And, uh, and then the other piece, of course, that was weird enough, is that then I went, you go, you know, they go into the Maloka, pick your spot. So I pick my spot 
And then I set it all up, and then I leave, and we go have dinner and all the rest of it. And then when we come back for the ceremony, you and I are beside each other. Yeah, crazy, eh? Which is pretty crazy. I mean, I don't know what the odds of that are, but, I mean, there's 25 people in the Maloka, so it's not astronomical, but it it's certainly unusual. And then as I texted to... uh your daughter, Sarah, um, I just spent four nights getting intimately acquainted, acquainted with the sound of your father's purge. <laughs> <laughs> Which is epic. Which, Which is, is extreme. Yeah, you purged for all of us. Because I don't purge. So it's just, you know. Oh, oh, my God. You're just having at it. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Now, you're a warrior in there, man. And you keep coming back. Yeah, I, kept, I keep coming back. I'm a, like, I don't know, like right now I'm a little, like, I don't know if me and ayahuasca are done or if there's more, but we'll see. Yeah. I'm, I'm in a similar place. I think I probably have done around 50 or so ceremonies in the last four years or so, whenever. And, um, I feel a little done with it. I, I feel like I got what I needed. I, I may go back if I feel called, but right now I, I kind of feel, yeah, I feel like I got what I needed. It's definitely powerful medicine. And I think like anything else, you know, you have to be discerning because I don't, obviously ayahuasca itself is not addictive, but I, I think the experience can be I don't, know if it, I don't know if addicted is the right word, but the uh, the pull to the experience of it, yeah, and the community and all of that, which is which is a great time. And I, I don't necessarily have a, a judgment over that. I mean, there's a community in Los Angeles that really, to me, feels like a church. Like they get together once a month, they have a weekend ceremony, and and there's new people coming in and out all the time. But there's a there's a base group of people that are that are always there and it's an incredible community and they do things outside of the community. They have concerts yes. and gatherings and it's a, it's amazing. It's beautiful. But for me, I, I just felt like it was, it was enough and that what I'm the path that I'm now on, um, there's, there's, there's other ways to get there and, and yeah. so i that's why i came out here to nature there's something really powerful about the natural world that i can feel and that's part of why i've been drawn to the lakota tradition because how deeply connected it is to nature and how their uh religion or whatever you want to call it feels very much like an expression of that that relationship with the natural world yeah you've gone deep into that the you know their music and it's beautiful it's beautiful what you've done i i've really appreciated that you know it's interesting to to look at the different like like where ayahuasca for me was very effective was not just in sort of dropping me into this non-dual space but also getting at the shadow yeah, yeah. And I was thinking of how, you know, you said there are other ways to get at it. And I think there are many ways to get at the shadow. And your work now is one of those ways, mm -hmm. right? It's like, I, 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 correct me if I'm wrong, but I see the work that you do as helping uh, men. I, I don't know if you're working with women as well. Now. Yeah, both men and women. Get at the stuff 
that, you know, the, the feelings that they've been carrying forever and, and having in ways that they're not aware of impacting their relationships and, and in that, in the safety of mm-hmm. the container that you provide, it comes out. Yeah. I'm looking to hold space for people to express their hatred. That's it. You to know, get right down to it, right? Yeah. Their hatred, their desire for revenge, the desire to hurt another person for the perceived real or perceived wrongdoings. Yeah. And, and I know from my own work, that's a, that's a deep reservoir. And if you go all the way into it, you will find out how deep that actually is that, you know, human beings, all of us are capable of intense cruelty and that knowing that part of yourself is vital to um, consciousness, you know, to he and to healing. Yeah. So that is, I mean, I don't, that's not where I start. Obviously not everybody's ready to walk into the room in the first session and go into their hatred, but that's where, that's where I'm leading them. And, and that, that once they go all the way into that, that's always going to take them to their pain which is, you know, we have a lot of reluctance to really feel our pain or even acknowledge that it's there. I mean, and it's one of the things that you talk about, I think, really uh, eloquently in your book is we often minimize um, the impact of uh, that, that our childhood had on us. Yeah. We, we, we minimize the pain. You know, I was abused by my mother. Well, you know... My dad hit me once in a while. It was fine. My mom, you know, we, we kind of minimize it. Like, I'm fine. Look at me. There's no problem. But I know from going into those feelings, whether it's through cornergetics or in ayahuasca ceremonies, that pain and fear is huge. Yeah. And the repression and denial of it creates all kinds of distortions in my life. Yeah, well, played. and it's, it's a hard, hard it's, it's it's not easy to convince people of that. Yeah, yeah, well put, man. Like I remember, you know, in Mexico, um, I was there <laughs> on paper. I'd been invited to been invited to be the integration specialist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I thought I'd better check in with our shaman, like what exactly I was doing there. Cause I was assuming that if I was going to be up all day, helping people to integrate, I wouldn't be doing the ceremonies. Mm-hmm. So I, t- I, I put this three days before I put it to him and he said, Oh no, you'll be drinking every night. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, th- I went there not, you know, well, I'd found out a couple of days before and they happened to be, so there was nine ceremonies back to back to back. <laughs> and, and, all of them took me directly into the same place of profound sorrow uh, and <clears throat> to seeing things that were done to me. And it took nine excruciating ceremonies of purging and seeing it all because precisely because I was in such denial. Yeah. Like, it's like, there's part of us that goes, this can't be, I can't fucking believe this. No, this isn't, this isn't real. It couldn't, no, it wasn't that bad. Like, you know, other people have had it worse. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, and finally, 
you know, on the medicine, ayahuasca wrote across my screen of consciousness in like literally in neon letters, failure to love period. It's like, dude, like, deal with this this there there was a failure to love and you have been hurt by that and your yeah. heart was broken and quit trying to get around it like reconstruct your life or let your life be reconstructed according to the truth not according to your fantasy that it was okay well it wasn't okay so here's how not okay it was you're going to be a toddler crawling around in the jungle on your hands and knees saying over and over and over again, I'm a motherless child. I'm a motherless child. And mm. you know, there's, there's what's true. And now get on with life. What are you going to do now? Like now that you know, how do you live knowing that you were motherless? It's very deep. And once you know it inside yourself, you, you just begin to see it everywhere you look and other people in the entire world that that so many of us are walking around with this pain with this sense that we are not lovable at our core jesus yeah we have to do something in order to be loved we have to be something other than what we are to be loved that certainly was my story and it manifests in a lot of different ways and in, in in different people, but it, it's, it's almost a universal condition, you know? And, um, and once you see it, you can't unsee it. And, uh, and so much of what, you know, the structures we build in society and the things that we're doing and, you know, my whole career as an actor was based on trying to get my mother to see me and love me. Yeah. That's it. That's it. There's, like, <laughs> you it's know? simpler than you think. Like, and you could go and sit on a meditation cushion for thirty yeah. years, and and have satori experiences. But when you come off the cushion, you're still going to be looking for that love. Yeah, exactly. It's like it, it doesn't take it away. It's no. Nothing. I remember after some of these ceremonies, walking down the streets of Vancouver, and like everyone seemed to be emitting the energy. Do you love me? Do you love mm -hmm. me? Mm -hmm. Do you love me? Do you love me? Can I, can, you know, what do I need to do? Do you love me? And I felt like my heartbreak for us as a species, because it just, and of course, that was, it was my story too, but I had at this point owned it. Like that, you know, the various ways I had um, constructed or curated a personality around that core wound and the denial of it, but the unconscious seeking for it nonetheless. And so then, you know, one day I stumble out of uh, the Maloka in, in, uh, in an ayahuasca ceremony. I get the whole download. Like I, I see it all in a flash. And like I'm, I'm just sitting there just staggered by what I'm seeing. And again, the words that come out is my life hasn't been my own. Yeah. I, my life hasn't been my own. I've been... I can't get over it. Like I've been living somebody else's life. This isn't been, and like, you know, and it's 55 years of this, right? It's like, shit, you know? And so on the one hand, it's like, there's, there's, there's deep grief, but for some reason in this experience, there was also like, there was the absurdity of 
existence. Like that's, it was also a little bit funny. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was also like, yeah. this is, how can this be that we can live somebody else's life for 55 years, you know, like, oh my, so. Well, that is the beauty of ayahuasca. It's definitely got a sense of humor because it'll show you this thing, this, 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 this truth that your life is not your own. It'll give you access to the pain of it. And then it'll sort of laugh around it. Like, and this is what it is. This is the game we're all playing. This is, and, and it, it, right. it, it I feel <laughs> it almost wants you to see the beauty in it. Yeah. And the perfection of it, yeah. which is the next level, right? Which is the next level. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, dude, now you're identified with the pain. You are yeah. it. Like yeah. you're in it. Yeah, absolutely. But you get a little glimpse of the transcendent function when mm -hmm. you're looking at it and you go, okay, well, this, you got a little distance from it. Now you can just like poke a little fun at it and go, okay, what now? When I was thinking about it, like who are the characters in movies and novels that we love the most? It's not the perfect Iron Man hero. It's the one who's a little oblivious, delusional, stumbling along, trying to figure it out and getting, picking up little pieces of love and nurturance wherever they can go, but they just keep going. The thing that we love about them is that they just keep going and they're moving towards something that, that that's actually the quality that is most heroic. And it's the anti-hero. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, when it, when a movie or, a, a for me, like most resonates is when there's an element of humor to it as well. Like we're able to, to see the, the humor, the beauty of it. And, and definitely ayahuasca. I mean, there's a lot of laughing in ayahuasca ceremonies as you have these realizations. Right. Yeah. There's a, yeah, there's this, the, the kind of ecstatic realization, even though it's painful as hell. Yeah. It's like, oh, God, of course. Like, there's an immediate recognition but that uh, of something that has been hidden, but obvious, hidden in plain sight, you know? One of the things I want to I wanna talk to you about is what you write about in your book, which is the family. And you, you come very strong, like you have a very strong take <laughs> on essentially that the family is a cult. I mean, you, you actually use that, that language and, um, yeah, maybe I can actually, um, there's a couple of quotes. Well, what was the one with the, let me just look it up here and let me read it to you. When a family defends its secrets over the truth, of the individual family member's experience, it is a cult, not a family. A cult, any cult, cannot abide members' expressions of individuality, doubt, questioning of core beliefs, challenging of norms and rules, or taking a higher perspective on what's really happening. Finally, a cult will absolutely not allow individuals to trust their own experience as authoritative. As soon as individuals achieve such an awakening, they are already banished, the trance is broken, Awareness is an act of self-banishment. And then if the backlash of the leadership and the membership of the cult do not evoke a renewed obedience, the abused individual must escape into madness or by leaving 
to never return. <laughs> it's heavy, man. It's it's real. It's really interesting because I, I, I'm gonna be honest. I was confronted by by it, um, and you make a very persuasive argument because I see what I see happening in the culture right now is on the. I guess you would say on the left, there really is. Uh, you see stories like we need to. The family's not good. We should be. You know, it takes a village. We need to go back to that idea and the parents, the children don't belong to the parents the way that we think about it. And on the other side, on the right, there's like, no, we need to return to family values. That's creates stability. And even Jordan Peterson really talks about that, that the stability of the family is what keeps society from going into chaos. So it was, and I was kind of leaning more towards that uh, thinking recently, but in, in your book really shifted my perspective. Do you want to talk a little bit about sure. that? Well, you know, to, to the degree that a family is conscious and is uh, consciously cultivating the sovereignty of the individual mm -hmm. members, right. then of course, they're preparing uh, uh, individuals to be a subversive presence in a society where it, that needs to be subverted. And therefore, you know, it's not necessarily uh, a right. cult, but, but where there is unconsciousness about the impact of intergenerational trauma, yeah. uh, and there, there is a, a hypnotic trance evoked where, and, you know, I, I think at another place in that chapter, I talk about how if we can survive as individuals, the atrocities that are enacted upon us and we can come out of that at age 20 25 and say yeah i had a pretty good childhood you know it's pretty good you know i had you know but mm -hmm. pretty good yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> well you know then the the state can count on families right to do the work of hypnotizing us into um into adherence to uh incredible levels of violence and failures of love and emotional neglect and policies that uh, should be chilling, should cause us to shudder, but we're inured. We're, we're like, oh yeah, well, this is just life. This, you know, it's like, this is what happens, you know? I, you know, people beat the shit out of other people and sexually abuse them and, you know, like, and invade other countries and, you know, it's like, oh yeah. So, so I was looking at how, like, the the family is is the wonder as it now exists, a wonderful tool of the state. It can count on the family to prepare us to be good citizens in a world that actually needs to be subverted. You know, my father, you know, who's a a good guy, but you know, when when I started bringing some of this stuff up and said, like, if you want to know me, uh, family, this is part of my story here. And my, you know, my father said to me, um, you know, are you prepared to lose your family over this? And wow. I'm like, why the fuck would I have to lose my family over what my experience? Like, why don't you just fess up? Why don't you come clean? Why doesn't, you know, she come clean? And then it's no drama. And then we can get on with being in a relationship. But no, it's like, that's not going to happen. And then. You know, the shadow aspect of my mother comes up and I get, oh my God, this like demonic 
thing starts coming up and I realize, okay, well, I've, I've, I've touched into a nerve here, but if you want to be in a relationship with me, you're going to have to hear this. If you don't want to hear it, we don't have a relationship and it's not my fault. Well, yeah, no, in order for them to acknowledge your pain and the pain that they caused, they'd have to acknowledge their own pain from their childhood. And just as we talked about, people don't want to do that. No. And it's yeah, a- that's, that's exactly right, David. That's, that's what's going on. It's like if at the moment they let, let it, my experience in, they're dropped into their own experience. And right. So there's a level at which, you know, it's not about blame and it's not about shame. And in yeah. fact, in the medicine, I had, I had compassion for the whole fucking setup intergenerational trauma going back millennia and what mm-hmm. happened you know i saw it all felt compassion you know uh but you know the invitation is just to let's come clean with it all like let's stop pretending you know that's that's the invitation well and i think that's that's also where there can be deep healing i mean one of the things that happened between me and my mother when i started to become aware and conscious of these things. I asked her if, and I pulled away for a period of time. I was angry as I was coming to terms with it and, and pulled away from her. And at a certain point I, I said, look, I wanna, I wanna talk to you and I wanna tell you what happened in my childhood. I wanna tell you what it was like for me and all my experiences. And over the course of a, a couple of different sessions, you know, of hours, um, I did. And she, I asked her to not speak to just be present and receive what I had to say, which she very graciously did. And it was deeply healing for me. Yeah, like It's a gift. Now, did she agree with everything, with my interpretation? I don't know. I don't really care in a way. <laughs> like, But are you willing to just be with me in this place and let me share what happened for me? And she did, she did acknowledge a number of things and, but all of it was not out of her own, uh, wasn't out of malice. It was her own, uh, unconsciousness. Yeah. You know, she was overwhelmed. She was young and this is what she learned from her mother. And this is just what it was. And so in some way I feel like, you know, if I ever, ever have children, it's like, what I'll know is that at some point in time, I'm going to have to, uh, give them the space to have their rage. Yeah, to hate me. me. Yeah, yeah, you can hate me. Hate I get me. it. Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm I'm not a fully perfect conscious human being, and I'm going to get things wrong, and I'm going to hurt them. I'm going to say things, you know, and that the best we can do is is allow them to have their feelings all the way, and then at that point, um, then it's theirs. It's like, okay, yeah, I hurt you. I'm sorry. I hear you. Yeah, what I did was wrong, and. Now, you know, welcome to life. <laughs> that pain now belongs to you and, you know, do with it what you will. I hope you'll let it go and forgive uh, whatever you need to forgive um, for your own sake. But, uh, I, and I think you're going to see more of that. The more people that are doing this work, um, I think they're going to, there's going to, they're going to be more conscious parents. And so I think that, you know, obviously it takes generations as we're waking up for this stuff to get passed down the line. One of my concerns, cause just cause you mentioned it is that too often in, in psychedelic ceremonies anyways, and to some extent, I think in psychotherapy practices, 
when people are uncovering this stuff, there is a tendency to move too quickly to forgiveness. Yes. To, to spiritualize it. And so mm -hmm. I write about that in the book as well about, you know, what is forgiveness and distinguish that from letting go. If, you know, I make the, I, I try to make the point that forgiveness is a transaction between a perpetrator and a victim. And if the perpetrator is willing to fess up and show genuine remorse and then you're given the opportunity to forgive, even under those circumstances, you're being a sovereign individual, you don't have to forgive. And it's not like, I think the, the rhetoric these days, if you don't forgive, you're going to get cancer or you're going to be, you know, I, I, well, that may or may not be true. I don't know about that. But the alternative is, is if you're not given that opportunity, you do have to let it go. Like you do have to find a way to, to grieve what's yours to grieve, right. to, to let it in. And then, okay, it's, you got to move on. If you identify with it and spend the rest of your life with this as your core identity, then, then I think the trauma and the failure of love has won. But the rush to forgive, I think, is a bit dangerous because it's an expression, I think, of what we were talking about earlier is the, the knee-jerk reaction to being, it, it's an expression of denial. It's like, I, I got I to gotta get to forgiveness as soon as possible because this is too fucking painful. Oh, yeah, I saw what happened. I forgave. Mm -hmm. Well, just, you know, slow down. Like, oh, that, that happens in my workshops all the time. People become aware of what happened to them, you know, and then they say, I really need, you know, I really need to forgive my father. And I'm like, do you? Maybe what you need to do right now is kill him express your hate and rage first. Let's, let's not, let's not get ahead of ourselves, you know, cause there's maybe you'll get to forgiveness. I don't know, but what you're telling me he did to you sounds pretty fucking horrific. I don't feel any forgiveness inside me. All I feel is protection. I'll, you know, I want to kill him on behalf of you. So maybe we need to work first with this, this rage. Yeah, man. I'm so glad that these people are finding you. Mm-hmm you know, uh, somebody who holds this perspective, it's not, it's not the forgiveness is off the table. It's just like, let it, let it, you know, it'll come when it's time, you know, in a sense, you'll discover once you've worked through all this thing, all this stuff, like, and, and been through your hatred and been through your longing for love and the, the grief of it all, you, you may discover that you've mm -hmm. forgiven and let it go rather than engineered it or willed it into existence because you should or else you're going to lose your family. Right. And how is that? How? Yeah. Which is you've been in that crisis for yourself. I mean, again, and I deal with clients all the time that have this issue where what do I do about my mother? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. She's making my life out. miserable. I don't want to talk to her. I'm like, well, cut her off. I can't. Well, <laughs> you know, and they're in, this, they're in this bind and there's so much societal pressure and also, also cultural pressure. If you're working from somebody from uh, uh, a, a culture that values the family, you would never leave the family. Like, you know, uh, Mexicans, yeah, right. they are all about the family. To say to a uh, somebody from Mexico, well, you know, you should just, leave your family behind. That's incomprehensible to them. 
Yeah. And so it's, and, and, you know, and it's not for me to say, but it, it, it's a, it's, I think everybody out there has this bind with, with their family. It's a, it's a love hate. Well, I think too, like I, I read about this, like one of the really radical things about the gospels is Jesus attitude to the family. Yeah. It's like scholars have never really come to terms with what the fuck was he saying there? They, they can't quite get it because what, what he's saying is that your family, your biological family is not treating you with respect and dignity, then leave them. And you, this is, this is a Jew, like, and yeah. family is critical. You know? Right. Like, right. So, so this was like, how, you know, you know, a whole bunch of, he's teaching some stuff and, and the, the crowd comes and says, oh, your family's here. And he says, well, who is my family? Who are my mother, my father, my brothers, those who do the will of God. So, you know, he contextualizes his family as a Jew. And it's like, it's a, it's un, unbelievable. No, I read that passage and in your his book. Own, it was very interesting. Um, yeah. And the, ener the energy behind radical. it. Yeah, radical, exactly. Yeah. He says, you think I've come to bring uh, peace? I've not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. Father will be divided against uh, a daughter, mother against son. You know, it's like, what? What's he talking about there? There's a guy that I follow on social media, Dan Pena. He is this uh, old school... Uh, Vince Lombardi type billionaire who's trying to teach people how to be rich. He's in his seventies now. He just screams all day long at you. And it's, it's, but he's got a heart. You can feel it. And uh, he's just like, fuck your family. Fuck them. He's like, it's like, if your family's getting in your fucking way at all, fuck them, leave them behind. Don't even fucking think twice. Just go. It's and it's so strong. And when you hear it, you're just like, but there's something I notice when like some part of it sounds so wrong and so harsh, but there's another part of me. It sounds so liberating. It's like, yeah, why don't I just do what I want? If anybody's holding me back, if it's my mother, my father, my brother, why am I why am I letting them hold me back? Why am I letting this these bonds of family hold me back from being all of who I am? And is that serving them? is not the best thing for me to do to be the biggest, fullest expression of who I am Absolutely. to be an example, to set myself free so that they can set themselves free. Yeah. My mentor, Andrew Feldmar confronted me with a principle, which was endure nothing and nobody. Yeah. And it's so radical when you start going endure nothing and endure nobody. So the moment you get, you know, um, because part of the hypnotic trance of growing up in families that, that where there wasn't a, a loving emotional climate where we could grow into who we are, not who we were expected to be, mm -hmm. is that we were precisely, we, it was a training ground for endurance. Right, right. Endure, endure torture. Yeah. Endure, <clears throat> endure an environment where your desires aren't even like uh, on, like, there's no, you can't even introduce your desires. Endure that because you don't have a choice. You have to survive. So the point is that when you're actually older, you're free. You don't actually have to endure 
people right. who aren't respecting you, people who aren't treating you with dignity, who uh, don't listen to your experience. It's like, you know, if they do, of course, you want to be with them. But if they don't, why would you sit there with someone like for hours and be bored? Because you feel like you have to, because that's how you grew up. And, you know, I, I remember the moment, um, you know, going into regression processes. I could, I felt the moment where I submitted. Yeah. In my childhood. <clears throat> right. It's like, I submitted my will. It's like, this is what life is. I don't get to be free. I don't get to have what I want. I'm here for my mother. I've got to do this thing. You broke me. Yeah, I got broken. You yeah. know, just, and that was a real, I, I felt the, um, you know, it was a felt experience in this process. I could also feel that what was right underneath it was the shadow, which is when I get out of here, because I'm not going to be here forever, I will spend the rest of my life punishing you for this. Yeah. That is my mission. Right. <clears throat> punish you for the rest of my life, which is also a thing to wake up to. And then in, in, in what ways am I punishing? You know, there's obvious ways, but there's probably a lot of less obvious unconscious ways that, uh, but important that shadow it. stuff, right? I mean, really mm -hmm. important because, you know, the moment then we get ourselves into relationships with other women as adults, well, I'm projecting it all onto them. They do something wrong. They don't love me the way I want. Then I'm going to punish them somehow, I'll some punish way. You. Yeah. And that's the game we're playing. That's the game, right? Yeah. And this is why that kind of shadow stuff is so important. Like whatever, whatever, however you might spiritualize your <laughs> mission and vision. Yeah. If you haven't surfaced this shit, like the real one is going to be, I'm going to fucking destroy women. Yeah. Anybody who gets in the way of my sovereignty, they're going to, the wrath of hell is going to be loosed. Okay. Yeah, my I will rationalize that shit with no problem. I can make sense of it, you know, make myself the hero in that story without any problem at all. It's just amazing the way we're able to rationalize this stuff. Um. So just, you know, I know it's almost time here for you, but uh, I just want to say, and you, you alluded to this earlier, I do feel um, that we are waking up. I see more and more conversations around this, this idea that we've, how deeply we've been impacted by our childhood and how that is now playing out in our adult, our adult lives. And, and that trauma is a real thing that we all carry, that just by virtue of being alive and being born and being in a family or not being in a family, you have trauma that needs to be resolved. And so, I don't know, I guess I just, is there, how are you feeling about what you're seeing out there and in your work with clients and, and where do you think we're at with all this? And, and maybe what, what do you think needs to happen next? It's partly why I'm encouraged by the psychedelic renaissance, because very quickly, if people get into it because they're sort of dabbling in transcendence and unit of consciousness, I think what's going to happen if they're honest about it is that they're going to get dropped into, uh, you know, the, the impact of trauma. And I'm, I'm, in my practice, I'm seeing that, um, <clears throat> like, a lot. Uh, 
indeed people are waking up uh, to it. And I think there's more trauma awareness in general in the culture. The other aspect of this is like to have to, like, like to, to like, what's it going to take to shift us into heart space and, mm -hmm. and, uh, <clears throat> so that, and, and I think healing is ultimately about relationship. Like it's not about psychedelics. I don't think psychedelics heal. I think relationships heal. Like we're, our hearts are broken in relationship and they're healed in relationship where we learn that we can be open and vulnerable and not be hurt. Finally, here's, here's at least one other person sitting in front of me representing reality and he's for me. So maybe reality is about that and not just about uh, people who will hurt me in mm -hmm. a vulnerable place. And so that there's a corrective and in the, in the midst of that corrective, we start to breathe again. We start to feel what it's like for our nervous system to relax. We start to reach across and experience what it's like to care. We experience tenderness uh, with others. We see their beauty, uh, you know, and, and then, then we have a new baseline for what life can be, mm -hmm. what, what we showed up for, you know, that, that, human beings you know we come into this world i think with immeasurable beauty and with radiance and the only the only job of parents in one sense is to see it and magnify it just like but the effect of trauma is that if we see this in these newborns that come into the world we've only got a couple of choices one is to magnify it and say you're so fucking you look at you oh my god i'm never gonna hurt you I, you know like i'm gonna like i'll be there for or it's to dim the wattage so that we can actually be with them and if i as a parent haven't done my trauma work my my instinct is going to be to dim their wattage so that I'm not ashamed and humiliated by their beauty and ashamed and humiliated by how my light was dimmed. So I, I think along with uncovering trauma, the, the, there, there need to be more experiences of, of realizing that tenderness is also on offer here. Mm -hmm. that this, 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 this person seems to want to be with me. Like, really? Like, <laughs> Like, how do, how, like, oh, I, maybe I am worthwhile, you know? So I'm, been, I'm, inter I'm interested yeah, in those moments when people go, you know, like I remember being with my therapist, I was on LSD and I was in an extended session with him and I was kind of, he was holding me and I was like relaxing and realizing this guy seems to want to be with me. And then I, then I got on top of him and I looked at him and I said, do you want to be with me? Or are you just here because I'm paying you? You know, and he said, I'm not a prostitute. So I said, you, you actually want to be here. Like, this is good for you. He said, I'm loving this. Like, this is like, where, where, where else would I want to be? Oh, Jesus. It was, you know. I know. You know? Yeah. So that's what excites me is like the moment people get that their presence isn't toxic. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, in the work that I do, you, you move people through the different stages and ultimately what you're trying to do is get them to a place where they can receive. But if they've never 
had the thing before that they've been consciously or unconsciously longing for, they don't know how to receive. Yeah, they actually have you have to teach them and they have to teach their own nervous system to to trust that this is real, that this is true. You what you you want to be here with me and then to literally take it in. Like and you can you can see like in real time, like I see it with people, especially it's beautiful cuz when you have a group and you can have a whole group of people come around a person and lay their hands on them and you can see when their body tenses up and their eyes get wide and they're like holding, they're resisting it. Um, and then you, if they can relax into it, uh, they start to receive it. But then there's a surrender that happens that is, that is terrifying because it takes them, it confronts their whole identity. It c confronts their whole idea of what reality is. And, uh, it's, it's beautiful to see, but that, I mean, that's what it is. You're taking somebody through a portal into another, a whole nother version of reality that's open and beautiful where you can get your needs met. But they have every reason not to trust it. Why would I trust that? It was never true. How could that be true? And so that's, in a sense, what you're trying to show people. No, this, this can be true. This can be real. Like, there is... And it takes the time that it takes. Like yeah, exactly. some people that's going to take years. Some people it's going to take 15 workshops. Mm -hmm. Some people are going to get it right away. Yeah. But the critical thing for me is I had, I've had to learn as a therapist not to be ambitious, not to, not to come with any ideals for how they should be. You know, yeah. you should be surrendering. You should be, you know, like just be mm -hmm. with them. Because the moment they pick up that I have some ideal in mind for how they should be, or that there's a condition that they should be in right now, they'll deliver it. Well, and, they're, and it's just recreating their childhood. I have to be something for my mom and dad. I have to be something for my therapist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Bruce, uh, we could talk for, uh, I'm sure, we'll have to do it again. Yes, let's do but, it. Uh, but thank you. That was great.